through immediate concerns and concrete sights and sounds and smells and tastes. Then we have this other more recently developed neocortex, literally new bark, the prefrontal cortex, and this is often called the executive function. This is where all your long-term kind of plans and really where the seat of willpower happens. So we make long-term plans, you know, I want to diet, I want to kind of go for that promotion in the prefrontal cortex. But when tomorrow comes, we actually have to enact it, you get these cravings to do otherwise, and that's through the limbic, the emotional response. So you have people having this conflict, you know, you want to eat that cake, but you wish you didn't want it. And really procrastination occurs because even though you know you should be doing this and you wish you had the motivation, you only really get going when both systems are finally saying go. And that only happens just before the deadline. Stop procrastinating, fool. Stop living in a rut. Go get something done right now, or do I have to kick your butt? Piers Steele is a distinguished research chair at the University of Calgary. He's the author of The Procrastination Equation, How to Stop Putting Things Off and Start Getting Stuff Done. I guess the big question about procrastination is, how does it make you feel? And if you can put things off without feeling guilty about it, maybe it's just a healthy coping mechanism. Most of us, however, are more like Patricia Pearson. She's a Canadian writer and journalist who's written a lot about anxiety and also procrastination. The other day, my husband was cleaning the fridge when he beckoned me to stop watching an all-new episode of Pick a Puppy on the Learning Channel and to come into the kitchen instead. Patricia, he said with a certain good-natured vexation, could you somehow devise a more rational approach to leftovers before I file for divorce? Ah, I peered at the shelves in our Frigidaire. There was a recycled yogurt cup housing one-third of a fish stick from the previous night's dinner. Beside it, some Tupperware containing approximately two tablespoons of soup. Next to that, a jar with a one-inch square strip of steak leaning tiredly against a string bean. And on the shelf above, a sip's worth of milk in a glass. The trouble I have here has to do with endings. In particular, I don't like to finish the last bite of food on my plate, and I put it off by saving these bites for some unspecified time in the future when I might wish to have a lick of chicken noodle soup or a dried-out morsel of haddock. Our fridge looks like a picnic hamper for squirrels, my husband said. And of course, the food does tend to become that as each tidbit eventually withers from my ambivalent neglect and gets transferred to the garbage. It is an unusual form of procrastination, I suppose, this tendency to put off consuming the entirety of dinner. But on some level, it's an act of resistance, I think, to living in a culture of haste and consumption. Hurry to the latest version of iTunes and the newest rendition of smartphones and the up-to-the-moment-is-dining experience. Buy and acquire and nibble and gnaw and rush about a rodent speed. Don't dither, get on with it, seize the day, move your unacceptably slowed-down butt along. He who hesitates is lost. Procrastination has fallen into ill repute, and I don't like it. Consider me counter-suggestive. Sometimes I think I would have been a more contented citizen of ancient Egypt, except for the part where one dies of sepsis at the age of 20 and has to spend eternity with a mummified cat, but otherwise the pace was much more agreeable. For 3,000 years it didn't occur to anyone in ancient Egypt to change their hairstyle. Century upon century went by, with everyone appearing to walk sideways along walls in the same sort of outfit, 
carrying similar stuff while sporting chin-length bobs. Everybody worshipped the same divine beings, decade after decade, three millennia, and still Anubis the jackal-headed god lording it over the temple. What was a generation gap in ancient Egypt? One generation of women preferred dyeing their hands with henna, and the next generation preferred dyeing their hands with henna, too. At some point, there was probably some seismic shift where the daughters rebelled and decided to use pomegranate juice, but then everyone settled back down to henna. We wouldn't know about it because the scribes took four months to carve out a single line of hieroglyphics, what with all their procrastinatory naps, and they had lots to note down about the afterlife before they got to fashion skirmishes and skin dye. Were they wasteful and hurried in the Nile Delta of 2000 BCE? I think not. Where innovation was concerned, they...